Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I want to give a quick shout out to my great sponsor, Blowfish for Hangovers, people. Blowfish for Hangovers. And I'm going to tell you something. Right now, it's the football playoffs. So I know you people whose teams are in the playoffs are going to be out drinking. And you're going to be cheering and drinking and cheering. And when you're winning, you're going to drink more. And when you're losing, you're going to drink more. And that means you may get a hangover and you have to go to work on Monday. So here's what you do. You got to get blowfish for hangovers because this stuff is the FDA says it's effective and it's real medicine and it comes with a money back guarantee. All you do is drop two tablets in a blowfish to your water, drink it and you'll get better and you'll be fine to go to work. And as I said, there's a money back guarantee. So what you do is you go to their website for hangovers. That's F-O-R hangovers.com and buy it and Drink and buy this, and if you put Cooper in at checkout, the discount code Cooper at checkout, you'll get 20% off your order. So, anyway, I'm excited for our show today. I've been listening to this gentleman's music uh, since I was in college. It, it, it was it, it was it was the MTV generation. I tried to do the hair. I, I never could pull it off. I, I think I had calyx. But uh, my guest is uh, Mike Score from the Flock of Seagulls. Say, no, Mike. Pretty good, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So, so it's it's 2017. Uh, do you any any uh, resolutions you're going to do, or do you have any goals you're going to do this year? What's up? What, what are you planning for 2017? Um, really, I'm planning to make another solo album. I made one about three years ago. Uh, I've got like you know, I never stop writing songs, so I've got a lot of songs. Um, but the trouble is when you write your next one, you forget the one you just wrote. You know what I mean? So you end up with a back catalog of a couple of hundred songs. And then you've got to go backwards and listen through them and go, I want to do this one and that one. Um, it would be nice to do to do a Seagulls album. But, uh, you know, I've been thinking of doing that for 20 years and haven't got around to it so much. So, um, yeah, it could happen. It may not. But, you know, mainly I, I sit at home and write songs and, and go out and do gigs, and uh, you know, it's it's the way the industry is now. It's it's not like the old days when you made an album, gave it to a record company, and and they promoted it. Now it's hard work. You got to do it all yourself. Right now, now you grew up in England um, as a kid. Wait, what what made you go into this this music uh, career? In music as a kid, was there music around your house? Did you listen to music? I know um, England was such a great place for music how did it all start and when when did you really start getting an affinity for music i guess i was about uh about 10 or 11 i used to ride around on my bike you know in liverpool with a little transistor radio on my bike and you know because that was the entertainment we'd either be playing football in some in some old field somewhere or riding our bikes around so i had this little transistor and i had it on all the time um and, you know, I was particularly interested in when it got to, like, Saturday and they put the top 40 on, you know. So I always used to listen to that. And then when I was about uh, about 14, I, a, a friend of mine and myself, we got a guitar and an amp and a microphone. So, we, we you know, we spent time, I'll try and play the guitar while you try and sing. And then we'd swap over. Um and then, of course, you know, life took over, and I didn't do it again. Didn't mess around with guitar and stuff till I was in my early twenties. And basically, synths were just coming out, and that's what really caught me. I loved the sound of synths. 
And as soon as I saw one for sale in Liverpool, I bought it. So so before okay so before you was said like when you said when you were eleven and fourteen listening to the Transistor who were some of the artists uh-huh. you were listening to because I know in America you know I grew up listening to Springsteen and stuff like that and then when we got Elvis Costello and the Police it blew our minds because we weren't used to that but who was were you listening to right. Bowie or who were you listening to? Um, I was listening to when I was about I don't know ten or eleven and I used to have my Transistor on like twenty four hours a day. The first band that really, really caught my ears was a band called Wishbone Ash. Okay. Um, because it was a lot of lead guitar and stuff, and I'd never heard anything like that before. And that led me on to, you know, like Pink Floyd and more of the hippie type stuff um, that Floyd were doing in those days, just, you know, Uma Goma and noises and stuff like that. Um, and then. I got into the Beatles, obviously, because being from Liverpool, that's all everyone ever talked about was the Beatles, and, you know, started to see stuff on TV, um, the Beatles, the Stones, uh, uh, shows called, you know, Thank Your Lucky Stars and stuff like that, Top of the Pops, um, and, you know, that kind of thing was, you know, you didn't get a lot of music on, on TV in England, that's, which is why we all listen to little transistor radios, so... Um, you know, as I got older, um, that that became more and more, you know, in the focus, the TV. See, and, you know, the Beatles used to be on the news. That's how big the Beatles were. Not just on music news, but on the everyday news. Like, you know, what kind of stories would they tell? Like, what would they say? Hey, oh, the Beatles are at the store. Or what would they do? Yeah, they were out shopping. Or here's John Lennon's new Rolls Royce. And uh, <laughs> John Lennon today said something about, you know, um, the state of the country and Paul McCartney flew to New York and it was anything about the Beatles um, and of course then the Rolling Stones and then then it started to become more popular to have music on TV <clears throat> um, when I was about 15 you know I had to go to work because you know I'm not particularly from wasn't from a rich family or anything so it was a case of uh, you want new shoes you're going to have to go buy them yourself now you know so uh, for about three years I, I, that's all I did was concentrate on work. And then I started to get into hairdressing and fashion. And being in fashion and hairdressing led me into, you know, watching people like Bowie and stuff like that and Alice Cooper. And uh, they had huge images, and a lot of it was based on hair. So to me, like, hairdressing was like, wow, yeah, this is a great, great place to be, fashion, music. Uh, I went into hairdressing a bit and got my own salon and stuff and and met a lot of musicians and, and went to see them. And then I said, you know, I can see these guys doing it. I could do that myself. So, you know, I like I said, uh, me and my friend Andy, we started a band. It was basically just a in-the-living-room band, you know. We just would jump around and, and play guitar and try and sing along with songs and stuff like that. And... Um, it, it was great fun. And a few years later, I went, I want to do that again. And basically, uh, I joined a couple of bands um, and then decided I would rather do my own thing and made my own band. So you, Which anyone with any sense will make their own bands. Oh, yeah. So so you're sitting there, so you, you decide to make your own band. And at this time, were you, were you dedicated to the synthesizer? Because I know you said you had gotten that. I know you had a guitar when you were earlier. Were you dedicated to the synthesizer? And then how did you put your band together besides your, 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 the other guy in it that you knew? How did you start forming a band and putting them together? 
Well, it, it kind of came naturally. You know, I was I was um, I was in a band playing bass, and my brother was kind of roadieing for us at the time. You know, he was he would come out to the gigs and hang out and roadie and help out. Um, and then he's like, "Oh, I, I'd like to be a drummer." So we basically just said, "Well, let's go buy you a cheap kit, so you can bash around and I'll bass around." And you know, um, and then I had my hairdressers and Frank who was the original uh, bass player in the band, you know, he wanted to, to do something at night to rehearse and be in a band. So I said, here, you play the bass, because like I said before, I just bought a synth, and it was kind of like, wow, this is the new thing. I'm going to be into synth. So Frank started playing bass, my brother started playing drums, and I started playing synth. And the noise was probably the most horrendous thing ever. <laughs> but... <laughs> After about, I don't know, eight, nine months, we'd settled that noise down into the sound that became A Flock of Seagulls, you know? Now, now, how did you get the name A Flock of Seagulls, and was that the first name you went with? Um, not really. I mean, we weren't doing gigs, so we didn't really need a name. Um, but when we started to look for gigs, I was reading a book called Level 7. <clears throat> so I said, I want to call the band the Level, Level 7. And we'd only been level seven, maybe a couple of months. And another band came out called Level 42. Okay. So we're like, oh, well, that kind of ruins ours because they, they already had a record deal and they were putting singles out and stuff. <clears throat> so I was also at the time reading the book Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And uh, it, it meant a lot to me. A lot of the things that I felt when I was younger were contained in that book. So I said, well, you know, let's be a flock of seagulls because nobody really knows who a seagull is or one seagull from the other. So nobody is going to, it's not going to be like, a, you know, uh, like um, Bruce Springsteen and his band. You know what I mean? So it was just like, let's kind of be like the Beatles, like the Stones and just be a flock of seagulls, the seagulls. Um, and of course, it was a name that, nobody had ever thought of anything like that before that we could see a flock of seagulls was just like what a crazy name so yeah. that's what we wanted and it stuck you know we'd had it about two weeks we'd done a small gig and somebody said you guys are a flock of seagulls aren't you and we're like yeah and we're like wow people you know the name is catchy now you get the name you get a gig <clears throat> When does the hair come in, and was that something that... Have, did you always wear your hair like that? I know you liked Bowie, and I know you said you had the whole fashion thing, but did that hair just come about because it was something to a stage persona, or were you wearing that in your everyday life? Um, kind, it, was, it was more like a Ziggy Stardust, you know, like real spiky on top and long at the back. Um, being in hairdressing as well, you know, you could do your hair different every day if you wanted, you know what I mean? So we experimented, and Frank and I, we both had Ziggy Stardust. I had a blonde one, he had a red one, and we we used to go out on the town uh, as, um, you know, as little David Bowies, if you know what I mean, <laughs> right. all over the Liverpool clubs. Um, and, of course, we were starting to, to pick up small gigs and, and we wanted to dress like Devo and Bowie and 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 look modern and, and outrageous. So 
um, when we when we actually did get a record deal and had to do something, it was a case of well, we don't want to look like Bowie clones um, in our videos and stuff. So we changed it, you know. And then one day we were we were actually going on stage, and I had long blonde curly hair at that time, kind of like a, you know like a, the Kajagugu style, okay, um, that kind of thing. And then I decided to ziggy it again so i was zigging it and frank put his hand on top of my head which flattened it down completely except for the sides so i was like we had these two antennas of hair at the side and all the rest of it down in my face but my manager was like you got to go on stage now stop messing around get on stage <laughs> we went on stage and people started pointing at my hair like it was cool and uh it became like the little talking point so the next night we did the same thing again. I said, I want it flat with the sides. And over a couple of months, it just developed into the seagull's hairdo. And to me, it was more like, this is much more spacey than, than um, say, Ziggy Stardust and all that, you know? It looked more like uh, Alien. So to me, it was like, wow, this is cool. It's a strong image. And I developed it and developed it and developed it. Did, did you ever think it would become like a pop culture iconic thing? It's like... You know, I mean, it's it's everyone, everybody knows that haircut. People know people know the flock of seagulls that your haircut more than they know of David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust. Maybe because it's different in ages. But did you ever think from that one night when he was just pushing it down that it would all of a sudden be like very well known for years? No, I never. I had no idea. That the only inkling we ever got of that was, uh, you know, we were. Uh, uh, in the early 80s when we came to America, we were basically MTV's favorite band. You know, um, MTV had just started. Um, they used to come to quite a lot of shows we did to see what was going on. And, you know, they liked my hair and they would talk about it. And, um, <clears throat> of course, to me, it was just another hairdo, you know, because I'd had about four or five before. Um and I, I actually only did that hairdo, I think, for like a year and a half. And then I, it was growing out, so I just like, you know, let it grow long and crimped it and stuff like that. Because, um, you know, it, it, when you're wearing it, your hair like that, it gets really tiring. Oh, yeah. You know, to, to try and keep it up. So. But I'm amazed that, for one thing, that people still talk about the hair how many years, 30-odd years later. And I'm actually amazed that the band is still going 30-odd years later. Well, to me, it's like, you know, uh, it, wasn't, it was just having fun, and it became a, a lifestyle, you know? You're, you're, so, yeah, you were just so, having fun, and you were playing gigs. Now, when did you start yeah. getting into the point where you said, okay, this is what we're going to do, and when did record companies get attracted to you and was it a certain song or like what songs were you performing in those early gigs and then were those songs that went on your initial album yeah most of the songs we were doing were the songs that ended up on the first album um <clears throat> the thing is we we didn't play that much we we played about six or eight gigs we used to rehearse about four or five nights a week for about a year up in our own little private world and then we went and did a couple of gigs. Um, <clears throat> we got we got spotted. We got taken to record com 
companies and 99% of where we went had no idea what we were talking about because New Wave wasn't out. New Wave was not even thought of, you know. Yet there were bands around like Duran Duran had just started. We we were getting around, altered images. There was a whole uh, slew of um, what we what we used to call the Raincoat Brigade bands, you know, like Echo and the Bunny Man and that had a much darker feel, Joy Division and stuff like that. Um, but we didn't want to be in that. We wanted to, to have fun. We wanted to get out there and get be colorful and have a lot of fun and, and, and you know, just enjoy it without being drab, you know, because life in Liverpool was drab enough, you know. So if we managed to get out of Liverpool, we wanted to have some fun. So um, we did a few gigs. We went down to London. And then we got noticed, and then, uh, like I said, we went to EMI. EMI wanted to sign us up, and Virgin Records wanted to sign us up, but none of them ever came through with a with a deal that we thought was was really worth. You know, it it wouldn't turn us into a career band. Okay. It would be like two singles, and if they do okay, yeah, you you can do a, an EP and an album. And it wasn't until Jive came along, and they said basically. We want you to make an album. Um, <clears throat> we think you've got something special, and but we don't know what it is yet. We don't know where to put you. So we said, well, you know, what have we got to lose? Let's sign with Jive. They're a brand new company, and they're probably going to work harder than a than an established company. Um, and that's the way it turned out. So, Jive, so Jive put a lot of money into the band. So when they come to you and say, you know, you're going to do, you know, make an album. What goes through your mind? Because all of a sudden, you have to have the songs. You guys weren't used to being in a studio. I mean, how did that whole... How did you guys get used to that? And, and what was your... Were you nervous when they said, okay, you got to make an album? Did you feel pressure? And then where did you go from there? Uh, we, we didn't really feel pressure because we, we thought we already had songs and we were, we were individual enough. You know, we had our own thing going. Um, it wasn't like we were trying to be a better Duran Duran or a, a different Boy George, you know that kind of stuff. It was, it was. The, we we used to go see a lot of bands. Nobody sounded like us, so it was just a case of if they put us in a good studio with someone that knows about recording, it's going to sound great because it sounded great in rehearsal. Um, and you know that's basically what happened. The worst thing that happened was that we made our album. We thought it was great. And it sat on the shelf for a year, or uh, just about a year, I think. So why? Just because were, were you not getting airplay, or why? Do you know why it sat on for a year? Well, I think uh, I don't think the the world was quite ready for us at that time. Um, in England, we were getting flagged off because we weren't part of the darker uh, brigade, and we didn't really have like political. Um, you know, there was nothing political in what we were doing. It was just about having fun and um, and basically in sci-fi, you know. And it wasn't the done thing. It was like you've got to have a political agenda. You've got to be, you know, um, <clears throat> what in England they call the labor. It was a labor government kind of thing. And a lot of the music press, they were, uh, you know, they were they wanted bands to have a political agenda. And we didn't. We didn't have a political agenda because politics didn't interest us at all. Just playing music did. 
you know, we weren't we weren't Billy Bragg or anything like that, you know. So you guys were you you're on the shelves. Were you frustrated? Or were you keep playing? Or how did you figure how you would get that the music out there? What what was your course of action? Well, you know, the record company were actively seeking um, <clears throat> to get to release it. They just didn't want to want to release it without some um, some fairly good publicity. And of course, they were waiting for to see what else was going on as far as progression of bands out of the dark into our kind of band. You know, I mean that the it was it was like after punk it was dark. And I and I think they, they said, you know, that we've got a great band here, a flock of seagulls, but there's no market for them yet. And so they were kind of waiting. You know, we were were playing live we were going out and playing live and doing really well and from that i think they judged that there was definitely a market for our kind of stuff um <clears throat> they were a new label and they were looking to basically they thought we'd do better in america than england and that's what they were looking for an american label that would put us out so what was that break that did what that brought you to america um, we were friends with a band called Squeeze. We did we did a, a couple of gigs with Squeeze, and then basically they said to us, "Well, you know, if you've got nothing going on in here, why don't you come to America with us and just play a few college gigs?" So we went to the record company and we said, "Hey, Squeeze are going to America doing some colleges. Can we go with them?" And they basically the record company went, "Yeah, we'll pay pay your expenses." And, you know, so we ended up coming to play with Squeeze uh, up around the New York area. And our managers, once we got to America, <clears throat> they went out and they basically secured us a lot of club gigs and stuff like that. So that when that little tour with Squeeze was over, we could stay here and, um, and you know, try and try and break our own market by doing a lot of shows. So you start doing the shows and now does your mm-hmm. is your is your album out in America yet? Yeah, because we were now over over in America playing live, the record company had found um, you know, they basically hooked up with Arista and Arista were like, Okay, then uh, this is one of the, the the acts you've got signed, let's put their album out. And uh, let's see how they did, because they knew we were willing to stay and play. Um, because, you know, we're, uh, you join a band to play, not to sit and, to sit around and do nothing. You know, you want to get out there and play. And especially if you've got some kind of a deal or recording thing going on, you want, you want people to hear that and then go buy your album. So <clears throat> we were willing to stay and do whatever it took. And I think we stayed for like nine months. And at the beginning, we didn't have a release, and at the end, we had a million seller. When, so, you know, we got good agents, we got, uh, our managers worked really hard, the record company worked really hard, and MTV, obviously, had just come out at that time, and they, we were on MTV, which put us in every kid's bedroom or living room, um, and it was almost all of a sudden, like, Somebody had lit the touch paper and the fireworks were going off. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, that was, you know, I remember when MTV first started 
And you're right. It's like we would see bands we really didn't know of, and they would just enthrall us. And then you would sit there and go, oh, my God. And then you would talk about it at school, like, hey, hey, did you see this band? And it was. It was like it was word of mouth from the video. What? How did you choose to yep. do uh, your – Iran was your first video, right? Uh, that that, you, that MTV it, played. Yeah, I think it was. Now, yeah. now, now, how did you pick that That's, song? Or was, was that just your most popular song when you played the clubs? Or how did you pick that song? And did you have any input in the video and the process of the making of the video? You know, we didn't really because it was – the record company were basically – you know, they said, we, we like this song, and you go into America, so this is a more American-style song. It's new enough that it's, you know, of the new wave of bands, but it's got rock guitar in it, and it's big beats and stuff like that. So they chose it, and they we went to their offices one day, and they went, go out, get yourself some clothes, come back in a couple of hours, and you're going to make a video, because they told us about MTV, and they said, and if they like it, they'll play it. So we went out, we got some clothes, we came back. About three hours later, we'd done a video, which was probably one of the cheapest videos ever made. Um, but there was nothing like it, you know. MTV was new, the whole genre was new. Um, MTV liked it, they played it. When we went over there, everybody almost, you know, in the smaller clubs and in New York and stuff, they knew who we were. So um, it just made it a lot more fun. Now, did you notice, you said they all knew who you were. Did you notice after the video started playing, your crowd's getting bigger at shows? And did you have to start playing bigger um, venues then? Or was it still the same? No, no. When we first came to America, everything we did was sold out. But, I mean, they weren't particularly big clubs. Um, but it, it was, it was, you know, we would, instead of playing a big place, we'd play a small place for three nights, um, especially around New York. And then of course we, we, you know, we'd done some of the colleges with squeeze and as we were getting more airplay, those colleges, we managed to do them on our own. So we were gradually climbing up because the more airplay you get, the more kids come, the more, if you're good live, the kids want to come again. They bring their friends. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's kind of like an upward spiral. Um, so everything at that time was was just every day was the most exciting day you'd ever had. You know, and then of course we we were hitting the the independent charts at the time and the dance charts. And, and to us, it was just like, wow, this is amazing. You know, we never expected it. We, we, we even used to say, if this stopped now, and this was in our first three months in America, if this stops now, we've done more than we ever, ever thought we would do, and it would be amazing. Now, now, what is it like when you all of a sudden, and you have that attitude, if, it, if this is amazing, and if it stops now, this is, we never thought we'd do this great. What is it like when all of a sudden you see your song shooting up the charts and all of a sudden you know it's it's big stuff i mean what is that like when you're ex you know you're experiencing that is it how do you keep grounded or do you get a little cocky going hey man we're on top of the world <laughs> well yeah you do get a bit cocky but you also get a bit scared you know um 
you get a set of playing to 500 people that want to see you, that come to see you, you're playing to 5,000 people and you're opening up for a, a bigger band, you know, and, um, or you're playing, like we did a, we did a tour with the Go-Go's and at the time we'd never heard of the Go-Go's and we're like, who the hell are the Go-Go's? But, but they had a top 40 album, I think. So we were opening up for them and our album was, was starting to do really well. So, to go from playing to 500, 1,000 people up to five and 10,000 is, is quite scary because you're not sure of the stage size, the sound. Everything moves up a big notch. Um, it, it's exciting because you're doing it, but it's also pretty scary that you're walking out on that stage and now you're trying to convince a go-go's crowd that you're good. You know, so um, you just go out, do your best, have some fun with it, um, and we were one of those lucky bands that the people saw us, liked us, and it, it all worked for us. Now, now you're doing well in the states. How's your How's your album doing overseas? I know you were very popular in Australia, right? Yeah, we were actually on our way to go. We we done our first tour. I think it was with the we toured with the Psychedelic Furs and the Go Go's. And we were going to go down to Australia and Japan and stuff like that. And the word came that, uh, you know, we didn't need to go to Australia because our album hit number one there. And it basically wasn't going to do us any good to go and promote it there because it, it's not going to go any further, you know. Um, and, and, of course, in America, we were doing well enough. I think we had, like, at that time, a top 30 album. So we decided we'd stay in America and, and keep promoting it here and playing playing live shows. <clears throat> and that's when uh, when we hooked up with the police and started doing stadiums. What is that like, doing a stadium? I mean, it has to be... Well, first of all, as you said, you know, and your, your rise, I mean, once you started playing in America, you know, you guys were getting... You gained momentum very fast. But to go, you're, yeah. you're still... You're still new to gigging live it's not like you've been gigging live for all these years and you're going from 500 to 5,000 and then all of a sudden the stadiums I mean what goes through one's mind when they're somewhat new at performing live when they have to perform in a stadium and then how do you do you prepare your same set list every night do you know they want to hear Iran you know they want to hear other songs how do you do the order of that how did you put that all together um Basically, you know, what we did was instead of playing to the crowd, because the crowd, you look out on a crowd of 60 to 100,000 people and it will scare you. If, you. if you haven't done it, it will scare you because it's just so huge. So what we did was we played to ourselves like we did in the rehearsal room, you know, which we, we looked at each other, we laughed, we were, we were telling the telling each other the, the same kind of things. But, you know, like we'd be on stage and between songs we'd be doing this, you know, but it was a joke when we said it in the rehearsal room. Um, and, of course, it's not like you're doing a full set. You're doing maybe 30 minutes instead of an hour and a half or something. So it was over before you knew it. And it was it was like everything was a super high, you know. It's, it's suddenly 10,000 seater, 
50,000 seater. And because as you go up, the people that work with you are better, everything else seemed tighter and better, and it just made you want to go on and do it again and do it again. What does it feel like? It's an incredible feeling. But I mean, what does it feel like when there's a hunt and you're not looking at them, and that makes sense because you know, you know, it would be intimidating. But what's it like when there's, you know, 50, 60, 80,000 people cheering for you? What is that sound? Like, what goes through your head? Is there just like a wave of energy that just smacks you right in the face? Or what? I mean, what do you feel and what do you hear? Um, I can only tell you what I hear, and that is, uh, I don't really hear the crowd at all. I'm listening for my drummer, and I'm listening for the lead guitar parts, and I'm listening to how uh, how the timing is, and I'm listening to, you know, how my synth sounds, and I'm listening to how I'm singing. So I've got like 20 things going on before the crowd gets into it. But I can look out between songs, and I can hear, you know, and sometimes I've come off stage and I've thought the crowd weren't into it and other people in the band have gone, are you crazy? They're going nuts, you know. But uh, there's a lot of other things, especially when you're playing and singing at the same time, you know, that, that um, you don't really get the time to, to look out on the crowd and think what they're thinking about it. You know it's going to sound good because it sounds good to you. You know you've got a great crew out there, great sound man. Everybody's doing their job, and if everyone's doing their job right, it's going to be great. So um, the fact that you can get on these tours and do that kind of thing—that is is proof, really, that you're doing a good job. And you know, and then of course, you know, when when you play in some of the places we played. You know, like Madison Square Garden, for instance, you know, you you walk out on there and you go, the people that have stood right where I'm standing, the legends that have stood here. And it just that's that blows your mind. Now, did you you played? I, I grew up near Philadelphia. I'm sure you played the Spectrum. I think we played the Spectrum. I, I can't remember them. I forget them as soon as they're done because. I go on to the next one. Yeah, what is that like being on the road like that when you're on a big tour? Are you are you traveling from tour bus or are you flying or how are you getting around when you're with the, someone like the police? Are you in a like a separate posse of them? Do you guys leave first or how would that work? Um, for us, it was the you know the band the band and crew travel separately. We had our own bus and we, basically we just. Um, you know, our managers made sure that we were where we needed to be at what time. The crew, they basically followed the crew of the whole tour. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, different bands do different things. I think even in some bands, different people in the bands do different things. Some like to fly, some like to drive. I don't particularly like to fly. So, you know, these days I drive everywhere. That everybody else flies, but in those days it was it was a big tour bus, and it was like a, a traveling hotel. Okay, so so now, now the album is a it's great acclaim. I believe you won a Grammy for best instrumental. You're, it's just it's just uh-huh. it's this great album. So now it's time to do your second album. What goes through your mind then? 
Do you sit there? Do you have to write new songs? Were you doing any new songs when you were on tour to think of putting them on the second album? Or is it a whole new process where you have to write a complete album? Um, it's a bit of both. It, it's definitely like, where are we now? Uh, what do we have left that never made it to the first album? Um, and what, you know, what songs have I written lately? And, um, how are we going to get this? Well, obviously, you know, the one song that never made it to the first album that was on the second album was, uh, if I had a photograph of you wishing, um, which was Basically, you know, should have been on the first album, but in those days, because it's a record, you can only get, I think, like, what, 18 minutes aside or something like this. Right. And that, that was like a nine-minute song, so the record company didn't want to have a, a, a new album from a new band with uh, maybe five songs on the album, you know. So that one got left off. became a hit on its own for the second album. Um, and then, of course, that gave us a little bit of time to write, but the, the you know the the bad thing is that your first album you've had a couple of years to write it. Your second one you get ten minutes to write it. Okay. So it's pretty difficult to keep your standard and keep your decision making uh, up to that kind of quality. You know. Now, now earlier you had said that when I ran when you did the video, it was a very um, cheaply made. I mean, they didn't spend a lot of money in the video. What was your experience in no. videos after that, when the budget was bigger, when they knew you were a proven commodity? How did the videos change? And then did you get input into the videos then, or was it still the record company pulling the shots? Um, well, basically, we were, we were left to do our own thing by the record company. They, they were busy promoting, and they wanted, you know, they, now that we've had hits, they were basically, they trusted us a bit more to have good ideas i think they looked back and said well you know they these guys had ideas of writing this music so they must know what it, it's like to uh, what they want to have an image like or visualize so <clears throat> we got a bit more freedom in that and you know early on for the the iran stuff and all that we were all in london and that's where the record company was as things went on we ended up being in america all the time with the record company in london so the record company basically would ask us what we wanted to do. <clears throat> and if, if they liked the idea, they'd say, okay, go ahead and do it. Do it in America. Don't You don't have to come home and do it. So um, that division of, of that space gave us a lot more freedom to, to do our own thing. So that album comes out and it's a success. And then you have to come out with a third album. Once again, do you have that shortage of time again or do you have a longer time frame to put a third album out um well the third album was not really supposed to be an album because uh, my best friend when i was at school had killed himself so i was basically in the rehearsal room and before anyone else ever got there every day i would try and write a song about my friend just from memories that we had together and um Steve Lavelle, who was the eventual producer of the third album, he he would come in first and say, you know, uh, play me the song you've written. So I ended up playing the song with him for about an hour. Then the rest of the band would come in and we'd jam a little bit. But Steve would always go, 
no, we we should use the songs that Mike wrote about his friend, you know. And uh, that eventually turned into Story of a Young Heart, which was, uh, you know, with songs I wanted to do as a solo album, basically, just to just as for my friend's memories. And it it, it was it was kind of like a a concept album about my friend. And concept albums were not in fashion at all in that at that time. So that album is a concept album. Now, now then you guys, you break up and was there any special reason why you broke up or was it just you wanted to go solo or were you just, you know, you had rose to fame so fast. It's probably also you guys had gotten older and you probably grew apart possibly. Well, there was a, there was a lot of a lot of things. Paul, the, the guitar player was very young, you know, and he was very easily sidetracked into the rock and roll cliches of drugs and stuff like that. And um, so that was a problem. Um, there was also the problem of two brothers in a band, which never seems to work out, <laughs> you know. <laughs> there was that problem. There was... Um, there was problems with girlfriends. There was problems with um, with work. Because, it, it, you know, we'd now been on the road, basically on the road for three years nonstop. Um, and we were, we were tired and tired of each other, if you know what I mean. So it, it, it just came to the point where um, every time we, we met up, it was not a particularly good place to be. So we, we would go and do gigs and we'd always have, we were, we'd fallen into the negative area rather than saying, wow, this is amazing. Let's keep going, which we were like in the first year or two to the, to the area of like, I wish I could do something else. So, um, we, yeah, we started to grow apart and, and, you know, things were forcing us apart. So you go uh, decisions go, that that we didn't like that each other was making and stuff like that. So, so you call it quits. You know, the band breaks up, uh -huh. and now where is your mind at? I mean, I know you went to different ventures, but do you want to stay with music, or do you want to take a break from music, or where do you go? I mean, I know you're you you know you you're back in music and you and you you've been, but what did you sit there when you when that, when your band broke up for the first time? What went through your mind? Did you say, I'm done with music? I, I've had three years of touring. It's a pain. I loved it in the beginning. It's a pain in the ass now. What do you decide <laughs> to do? And then uh, where are you living at this point, too? Were you living in still in England, or were you just living on the road, basically? Um, well, like I said, we'd been, we had been living on the road for like three years. So I went back to Liverpool. And when I got to Liverpool, I, I spent about three months there, and I basically decided there's nothing here for me anymore. You, you know, you can't take somebody off the farm and show them New York. You know that kind of thing, right? So, um, so I said, you know, I got uh, a call from a friend, and it was, yeah, come over to America and stay here. So that's what I did. That was, uh, I think, 1986, and I came over to America and. You know, I, d I didn't really want to do anything except hang around for a bit. And then I got um, <clears throat> I got a call from an agent who said, hey, if I put some shows together, will you put a band together? And I said, I can do it, but it won't be the original band. So 
just for fun. We went and did that and did a few shows. And, and then that was kind of like, oh, this is quite easy. You know, we, it wasn't stadiums. It wasn't even 500 size. But it was like, oh, this is, this is more like it was at the beginning. You know, when you're just playing for yourself and you go play a pub and there's 50 people there. Um, so once, once it was like that, it was like, no, this is no problem anymore. I'm not, not under any pressure. So I'm going to do this. Now, when did you, I know you, you restored boats. When did your love for boats start? Was that at a young age or how did you do that? I mean, were you always a boat guy? Cause, uh, how did, how'd you get into that? Um, well, I used to like pirates and stuff when I was a kid. You know, I used to watch all the pirate movies. And then I, I went to live in Key West for a little bit, and there's nothing there but boats. So uh, I ended up, you know, wanting something to do. And I met a guy who said, hey, come, come and work with me on boats. Because uh, I did know a bit about woodwork. So, you know, we went and we worked on some wooden boats, and it was just fun to do anything it wasn't music because music's very mental and very inside your head, very cerebral. Um, but you know, building something with a hammer and nails and glue is is physical. It's completely different. So it was it was a good thing to actually not have to think, just do. So I ended up really liking building boats, and we did a couple of restorations on you know old Chris Crafts and stuff like that. And then I learned about fiberglassing and stuff. Um, and it just became more like a hobby. Now, now, when did you start to record your solo stuff? I know you did something on this train spotting soundtrack. How did that come about? And when did you start to record your solo stuff? And was that different when the, the writing process and the recording process from when you were doing it with Flock of Seagulls? Um, yeah, a Flock of Seagulls was... A band project, you know, I, I, I hate the word project, but we were a band and we were together and we did everything together. And uh, because we had a record deal, we had a schedule and a timetable. And, and um, you, you know, you basically you, you're, uh, you have to fit in with everybody else. So it becomes, um, I don't really know how to describe that, apart from the fact that it's not just you doing what you want. When I came to record my solo album, I, I actually, it, you know, I, I, I say it took about six or eight months, but it actually took about four or five years because I would write a song. We'd start recording it in my, my home studio. We'd get halfway through it, and then I'd go, meh, I'm bored with this one now. Let's move on to another one. So we ended up with about 30 or 40 songs that were, you know, recorded half-heartedly, never finished. <clears throat> and then at one point, one day it was weird because one day I just woke up and I went, all right, from today on, I'm going to do nothing but record my solo album. And from then on, it took about four or five months, you know, of, of writing a couple of songs, redoing a couple of other songs, working out how I was going to get it released because um, I wanted to do everything myself. And then... Um, getting it released. I went to LA and worked with a friend of mine um, in his studio, which means, you know, when you work at home, you tend to say, yeah, I'll go watch the X-Files right. in the middle of doing a song, <laughs> you know. But when you're at someone else's studio, you're like, oh, I'm here to work, so I better work. 
So over about three months, we did about eight of the songs, and then the others got done at home over the period that I was at home. So maybe over six months, the album got done and mastered and remixed and stuff like that. And I think it worked out really good. I was really happy with it. Um, of course, no record company to promote it, nothing like that. Um, but I was happy with it, and I'm still happy with it. But I, I didn't feel any real pressure to put it out and do stuff because um, you don't have that team thing where, you know, uh, when you're a band and you've got managers in a record company, it's a team thing. You've got to get it finished by a day so they can do their bit. And then the record company want to pick it up and they want to, you know, get their investment back and stuff like that. Whereas to me, doing a solo album is more like a labor of love. You know? Now, how do you think your your writing style and what you write about has changed over the years from when you were young? Is it Has it changed? Or are you still writing the same kind of style? How have you grown as a writer? Because, as you said, you've been creating music for 30-odd years. I mean, so everyone grows and we grow and we change. Have you noticed that in your writing style or do you try to keep to, um, to the original that you loved that way writing when you were younger? I liked the way I wrote when I was young because um, it was very sonic. I, I, was, I was more into the sound of the whole song, if you know what I mean. And the, I learned from bands like Yes that the lyrics don't really matter as long as they sound good. And then I think as you get older, you're, you're more into actually saying something within your song, you know, whether it's a love song or something like that. And that makes it harder to write about flying saucers because are there any flying saucers? We don't know. So it's all, it's all just in your head. So, um, but to me, really writing songs is, is, it's kind of like, I don't know, like a joiner putting a door in. It's like, oh, today I'm just going to write a song, and if something good comes out of it, great. Um, the great thing about having a band is you can come up with an idea, go to your rehearsal room, show it to the band, and then everybody works it, you know? And that's what happened with us at the beginning. So you end up with, with a certain style. As you get older and work on your own, there isn't that kind of input, so everything tends to be your style. Now, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Now, now you've been you're back on the road again. Now, is that because because '80s music is very popular again, and and people were contacting you more, or was that a choice you decided? Basically, when you well, now that you're doing gigs again, did you decide you wanted to do them, or did someone say we want you to do them, and you said, "Man, I love this." How did that happen? Because you guys play, you know. I know you, you're doing the shows at uh, the Microsoft Theater and stuff like that. How does how did you get back in the mm -hmm. groove? Well, really, since I put a band back together in about '89, uh, I've never stopped gigging. You know, we've done lots of small gigs, we've done huge gigs, we've done um, big places down in Mexico, we've been to Europe. Um, Gigging is, is like the lifeblood of, of musicians, you know. It's, that's where the real camaraderie and fun of it is. So I've never really stopped gigging once I'd restarted the band. Um, some, some years it's not as many shows as others. And some years the shows are smaller. Last year the shows were bigger. 
you know, it was a, the Microsoft and stuff like that. And that depends on, again, the, the fluctuation of whether people think a flock of seagulls is an 80s band or just a band that they want to see. You understand that? Right. Well, so, 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 you know, what's it like now? If it's something like the Microsoft, if it's something like the Microsoft, which is more of a nostalgia trip, then it, it's a bigger place. Because a lot of people that were into the 80s, of now their kids have grown up and gone away, and they're having fun again with what they, they had when they were at college and stuff like that. Now, your song was also featured in La La Land, the movie. Mm-hmm. Now, how did that come about? And now that movie's like the biggest hit. So now you'll probably get another, a, a, a second wave of new people exploring the music. Did they contact you or how did that come about? No, they don't, they don't contact us. Um, what tends to happen is that the publishing company will contact me and say, hey, these people want to use your stuff in a movie and... If you like the idea, or you, if you don't like the idea of what the movie is about, then you can refuse it. You know. Um, otherwise, I give them permission to to use it. And I think that, that actually, Seagull's music is in about five movies that are coming out in 2017. So that must be a great feeling. I mean, because well, you and your thing is though, it's like as I said, your songs. Everyone knows the Seagull songs. Now, when you play live, do you also throw some of your solo stuff in your sets, or do you strictly set stick to Seagull sets, or does it depend what kind of gig you're doing? Um, well, obviously, the, the nostalgia gigs, they're only, you, know, you only want to play the 80s and right. just the big hits because that's what people are paying for, and that's, that's how you'll get them to smile and to, um, to enjoy it, you know, and you really want your crowd to enjoy it. When we play smaller gigs, which are just our own private gigs, or um, you know maybe not so small, maybe anything up to a couple of thousand, then we put some new songs in. I haven't played any of my solo stuff live because my solo stuff is not a flock of seagulls. Okay. It's it's me, and and eventually, when I do my second album, my second solo album. I would love to go and tour that because then I'll have enough material that, um, you know, to make a full show. Instead of just having like 10 songs that are on the album, I'll probably have 20 songs, which which makes a nice, uh, if people are into my solo stuff, then fine, you're going to get a good, good look at it. I won't have to pad that out with other stuff either. But Seagull stuff, I tend to look at A Flock of Seagulls as, a product of that era and that feeling of time, you know, between, say, 1980 and 1984, 85, that's what threw a flock of seagulls up. That whole feeling of uh, changing from the dark bands up into new ways. So I kind of like to keep that like that, you know, like it's keep its purity. Now, what is your solo stuff in contrast, how is it? Is it moodier or is it how? What's the sound? Mm, well, because it's me writing, it obviously has uh, like maybe a core that's similar to a flock of seagulls, but I think it's a bit more personal. Um, it's a bit. It can be a bit heavier. It can be a bit 
um, a bit more diverse than a flock of seagulls because, you know, a flock of seagulls, we had a certain sound that we developed in rehearsal and all that. And I think we were pretty successful because we took that core sound and we worked around it. And as a, as a solo artist, I've kind of done the same thing, but with the way technology is these days and, and stuff like that, it's, you can be even more diverse, you know, with the way synths are and different sounding instruments. I mean, in the 80s, I was totally into synths, but now I'm into all kinds of things that make noises. So, you know, but I don't want to be like, say, Peter Gabriel and go African, you know, right. that kind of thing. Yeah. You have, you, <laughs> I just you, want to do my thing. Um, and, again, and again, and I don't have any politics. I'm just in it for the sound and how I think about the sound. And sometimes I just sit in my studio and I'll bang around on one note on the synth and just turn a few knobs and go, wow, that was suddenly two hours of doing that. Why can't I just make an album like that? Right. Because if it keeps me interested for two albums, what are, for two hours, what are other people going to think, you know? Okay, now we have to go soon, so, but do, 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 you still get, do you still get that spark when you go on stage? Do you still feel it? Do you, is it, this love still there, or some nights it isn't, or it depends on your mood? You know what, sometimes I'm totally glad to walk on stage, and then other times you think, I just don't feel it tonight, but then you get on stage and you start playing, and it hits you. You know, when the band hits it right, it goes through you like a shiver, and you just you just remember. I mean, like the first time we ever did Space Age Live, sometimes I get the same feeling when when we play big shows, and I just get that shiver, and I go, "Wow, this is you know." So I, it takes you back to when you were rehearsing a song, and there was just the four guys there, and then suddenly you're playing it in front of twenty, thirty, forty thousand people. You know, and, and it just sends that shiver and that memory through you. And you're just like, you know, basically the feeling is this. I'm a lucky bastard to be up here. See, that's so awesome, man. You know, I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. Uh, see, this this hour flew by because, you know, I'm a fan of the music and I always love talking to people that I love their work and it's been a part of my life. And uh, now do you have any, do you, now are, are your, your website is, uh, is mikescore.com. Yeah. And now do you tweet? I, you know, I'm not a, a big into the uh, the Twitter and stuff like that um, because I didn't grow up with it, you know. So to me, it's kind of like a pain in the ass, if you know what I mean. Right. You know, it's it's like I'd rather, like, I could spend two hours on Twitter or I could go mess around with a synth or a guitar for two hours. I know which I'd rather do. Oh, exactly. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I want, yeah. to, I want to thank you for coming on, man. And uh, and people, so please, if, if you if you don't know a flock of seagulls music where have you been for the last 30 years idiots come on if you don't know it go look it up go youtube it man this is when videos were in the beginning this is what this is what mtv was about which mtv is crap now but this is what made it just impacted a whole generation of us so go check it out people and uh, check me out at cooper talk that's at cooper talk i tweet all the time my website coopertalk.net i have 580 episodes up you can also email me cooper at coopertalk.net uh, Instagram and Words with Friends, Cooper Talk One. I'll play you. I post pictures of my guests and I post pictures of my food because by my cookbook, when I had my heart problem, I wrote Stop the Salt. It's a 120 low sodium recipes. Go to stopthesalt.com. 
It's it's easy cooking, cool. recipes for one, no pictures intimidate you. You can buy it there, you can buy it at Amazon or Barnes Noble, but buy it from me at stopthesalt.com and I make more money. Anyway, people, check out Flock of Seagulls, check out Mike's score. I'm Steve Cooper, I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.